osmosis more high marsh systems or more diverse type of munitions. So what I see there is at least a dozen different types of rockets that fit into high marsh. Um, should he focus, if he if he were to pressure our elected officials uh, for supply to Ukraine, um, should we pressure them more on uh, high marsh systems or more diverse types, the more numbers of uh, rockets uh, to uh, actually deliver the punch? It's a good question. I think right now, at least as far as what's publicly available, they actually need more rockets than systems because they're getting to the point where they have something on the order of 18 systems, which is like a full battery and eight, uh, 600. So so there's some confusion. We don't know for sure, but they said they sent 600. They said 100, you know, HIMARS rockets or, or rocket you know, something to that effect. And we assume that meant rocket pods, meaning they have 600 rockets, right? So 100 total strikes. Um, And typically they've been doing their salvos or their, you know, attacks for this uh, in in groups of two, meaning they're shooting 12 rockets at a time. So they have 600 rockets. So far they've used about 24 uh, that we publicly know about, right? So it looks like in terms of like rate of consumption, from what we publicly know, again, uh, they're going to need more rockets, but uh, you know we don't we don't know the full picture, of course. And uh, you know I, I could be uh, mistaken. Portland, did you uh, maybe have any thoughts on that? A, a quick interjection. So if I would need to pressure my elected official uh, for more ammunition for the HIMARS systems, is there any uh, rocket systems I should point out that would be most valuable? Attackums, yeah. So Attackums works with HIMARS. It's compatible. Um, we want Attackums. Uh, we're big fans of it. But uh, the other one is a Gimler. It's uh, just the guided. Uh, these are just the standard rocket pods. Basically, they're they're guided uh, with GPS. Uh, they can hit a huge area. Um, they basically, typically, they're going to use them in what's called air burst. Um, they're they're going to explode in the air and they're going to shoot little tungsten pellets everywhere. And what those little tungsten pellets do is they blow up, uh, well, they go through vehicles, right? They basically just disable vehicles. So uh, you you see a HIMARS strike and you go, um, you know, it's not all like, it's not a giant crater, but um, what's happened is like all the vehicles are now, you know, junk. They're, 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 they're just scrap metal because little tungsten balls have ripped through them. Uh, Portland, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm in, I'm in your lane here. Supposedly, uh, Joseph, supposedly tungsten balls are also not very healthy to Russian generals' hammers. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to kill everyone in the area too. And I think it does like stuff like basically not many people are going to survive uh, in the area of uh, an airburst at HIMARS strike. I mean, maybe if you're inside a building, but uh, even then, uh, the tungsten, the tungsten balls are designed to pierce very thick stuff, and uh, yeah, every, everything is. Like, I guess what I'm saying is you don't see a huge, like, you know, smoldering black uh, crater, but but everything in the area is, is shredded up real good with uh, tungsten uh, pellets. Uh, but anyway, I, I hope that uh, answers your question, Herm. Uh, d- did you have any follow-up there? Um, no, uh, thank you. I'm actually just going to drop down now, and um, love you guys. Great space, and um, I'm going to listen in more. Yeah. Bye. Oh, hey, how we'll did Portland follow up? Go ahead, Portland. Um, uh, where are you from? Well, I'm originally from um, Germany. My family is mostly from Poland, all over um, Europe, Eastern Europe, and I'm currently living in California for a couple of years. Okay, fantastic. Then the two weapon systems that you want to be pestering your congressman about 
is M31A1, which is the specific model of Gimlers that is most useful to Ukraine right now, and Atacams. Those are the two systems that um, I can see um, breaking us out of this meat grinder. Those two, M31A1 and MGM140. If you can get any pressure uh, applied for those two systems, that would would be incredible. My job is... Oh, thank, thank you, Herm. And, uh, you know, my job's really easy because uh, my, my senator's Mark Kelly, and uh, we had his twin brother on the space, Scott, astronaut Scott Kelly. Uh, and so all I have to do is write a letter and say, hey, like, your brother told me to send more weapons to Ukraine. Send them, send them now. Your brother, your brother commands it. Okay, so we got all your space. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I just kind of came back into the space, and it sounded like uh, there was some reason to, to think, I guess, that, that some of these strikes within Russia had been conducted with the HIMARS. And I don't know if I understood that correctly or not. Maybe too soon to know, and I guess we may never really know. But, um, I mean, it, if that is the case, wasn't there some kind of an agreement uh, that they were not supposed to strike inside Russia? No, nope. with... nope. there was no such agreement. That was a narrative which the New York Times picked up from Russian narratives and an ambiguous statement by an undersecretary of the, uh, of the DOD at that time. It was invalidated already two weeks prior to the narrative being spread by Liz Truss, having stated or restated what, uh, what Andrew Hippie and uh, Ben Wallace had conveyed um, at NATO's previous conference that any and all weapon systems delivered by Great Britain would, uh, of course, uh, be able to be used uh, on legitimate military targets in Russia. And given the fact that uh, the missiles which have been in use at the moment, the Gimlers, may very well have originated from British soil and be delivered by Britain, even if they have been purchased from our dear American friends, that is it. The funny part is that at the NATO summit, the Americans have reiterated the same thing, and Lloyd Austin at no time has ever said that HIMARS systems would not be uh, allowed to be used for that. The geofencing idea is a Russian narrative spun by left-wing media in the US and uh, media all across uh, Europe and mainstream media of whatever political bias, direction, and provenance. It is wrong. And, I mean, just one thing I'll add to that, Axel. I think you're absolutely right. Like, it was a, a narrative. Um, it was basically misinterpreted, misconstrued by uh, the press and, uh, the, you know, the, the U.S., uh, uh, pe the Pentagon, I'll just say, the Pentagon basically came out and said, yeah, that was, it's misconstrued. If they, if they need to hit, if they hit viable military targets in Russia, like we're not, you know, we're not telling Ukraine how to use these weapons to prosecute a war to defend their territory from, you know, Russian terror attacks and aggression. Uh, so, so uh, there's that, but I do want to just say that there's like maybe two separate issues here, right? There's, there's kind of that we feel like we've, we've crossed some prohibition with Russia and we're kind of, uh, you know, as always, we're trepidatious about this escalation, right, um, to use their language. Uh, but then there's the other sort of angle of this, right, which is there are now so so I think in the past, right, there have been a few strikes in Russia, right? There's been our friend, uh, the drone that hit the refinery. There's been a, just a Tochka strike here, a Tochka strike there, a, uh, a Bayraktar blowing up a fuel truck here. 
you know, and it's always been my opinion that like Ukraine was like kind of the, the plucky underdog and they were finding these little holes in the Russian armor and they were piercing those holes and they were taking these targets of opportunity where they could because Russian defense was so strong. They had to find these little holes where they could. But I think we're now seeing something different. I think we're seeing the truth, which is Ukraine just was being very careful with what weapon stockpiles they had, right? They only had so many Tochkas. They know that this war was going to go on for a long time. They had to hang on to what they had. Now we're seeing that they're being given strategic weapons in quantity, and we're telling them we're going to give you more, and they're going, okay, now we can use them, right? And we're, we're using the HIMARS, we're using the um, Tochkas, we're using, we're using strategic weapons at a volume that is more consonant with what is being given to us. And now that that's happening, we're seeing the result, which is a bunch of targets hit hit inside Russia simultaneously. So that's like a new precedent. So I'm not saying that the escalation narrative, we, we should like, um, like tamp down or, or push back on the escalation narrative, but this is a sea change in terms of just the, uh, the a it's a new development in, in the war, I think, um, in terms of strategically. Uh, but Axel, I, I'd like maybe your comment on that, and then we'll go to Portland, maybe. Uh, Axel, go ahead. No, you put it perfectly. Um, but there's nothing to add. Thank you very much, Axel. Portland, yeah, go ahead. Thanks, thanks for the clarification on that. And that that narrative about not striking into Russia, yeah, it it was everywhere. Um, so I I'd appreciate the the clarification on that. Wow, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah, I wish I had a source, but yeah, I do remember the Pentagon coming back and saying basically, yeah, it's not, it wasn't, we, we never, we basically never said that, you know, it, it was just some, kind of a confusion. Uh, and, you know, it, it was a controversy at the time, but yeah, it was, it was sort of taken out of, uh, out of context by the press. And uh, now, now we're seeing the result, I think. Uh, but Portland, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Okay, I would put in one name, Durante, Durante, Durante. There you go. Okay, I don't think Portland has anything uh, really to add unless he wants. Oh, there he goes. Go ahead, Portland. Um, so the thing is, is that there are some things that Tochka can do, uh, that it can do a lot better than, than HIMARS can. And the, the fact is, is that for most of what you want long range artillery to do, uh, what you really want is extreme precision. You know, you, you want to you know, drop around within three to four meters of uh, of an intended target. And uh, you can tolerate having a relatively small explosive payload if you can get that close. Now, Tochka has a CEP of, you know, the... the, the uh, the the announced CEP is ninety five meters. Uh, I actually think, based on operational data available, it looks like it's closer to one hundred fifty meters. But it does have a monstrous big warhead. So, if you've got a target for which you just need to drop a bloody great big thousand pound bomb on something. Uh, and just send fragments for 122 meters in every direction. Tochka's real good for that. And the the fact that they now have 
this extreme precision capability available in large numbers means that they can actually make much, much better strategic use of that Tochka capability that they were not previously able to do. So the wonderful thing about this that you have to think about is the ecosystem of systems, right? Um, having HIMARS makes Tochka better. If you have Tochka and that's really all you've got to work with, then, you know, everything looks like a Tochka target, even things that are not really ideal targets for Tochka. Um, and that puts you in a position where you really have to husband those resources and a lot of targets go unaddressed. Um, if you have M31A1 and you can huck 12 or, you know, 18 of these at a time and they can each hit an individual target with an accuracy better than four meters, then you can throw large numbers of those and you can really keep the enemy off balance. You can hit all sorts of interesting targets and then sooner or later, something is going to roll up that is going to be the perfect target for a Tochka strike. At which point, um, HIMARS goes and blows something else up and Tochka takes over. Um, you know, we, we really do need to expect to see a much, much better uh, thought out and more thoroughly analyzed use of that other strategic missile capabilities um, over the coming days. And it, it, it is going to be a big difference. And, you know, I, I just think everybody should should be prepared for this. Axel, do you want to do any follow-up to that? I couldn't agree more. Oh, Axel, we're all on the same page here, I think, uh, which is uh, interesting. Uh, so we'll go to uh, Lisa. Go ahead, Lisa. Can you hear me? We can, Lisa. Go ahead. Okay. Um, this had just come down in the drop-down. Uh, it's from Alisk. Let's see, Alexil Reznikov, a Ukraine government official, it says, thank you at the President of the United States and my colleague, Secretary of Defense, for another significant step in the support of Ukraine's decision to supply NASAMs for the Ukrainian army. This increases our capabilities to protect our land and sky. Victory in the war against terrorist state will ensure global security for years to come. Now, this may have been said before, but like a lot of the abbreviations and things, I don't always remember. But what are NASAMs? Yeah, so uh, NASAMs, uh, I'll, I'll try to summarize. Uh, so it's an air defense system, so it protects against missiles and aircraft, uh, and it's designed by Norway. Uh, the, the strengths of the system, at least as far as uh, Portland and, and John have explained to me, are that it's extremely flexible. It can shoot a lot of different anti-aircraft missiles or anti-ballistic you know, uh, uh, missile missiles. Uh, I don't know any of the proper terminology for this, uh, and I, I'm sure Portland will add on, but I'm trying to you know, save him some work here, and he can just add on to this. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, uh, yeah, it can shoot a lot of different missiles. So it has a lot of different capabilities. And it also, um, very importantly, can plug into a radar system that Ukraine currently has. So 
it can kind of plug into their network uh, seamlessly. And air defense is all about having a network of, of different capabilities, as Portland was just saying, an ecosystem, right? Like if you have NASAMs and S300, you're more protected than if you just have S300. You have options, you have, um, and your enemy has to account for the fact that you have options. Now they don't know what you have. And NASAMS is really good because there's lots of different missiles that they could put in there that would give them lots of different capabilities. And because of that, they can use really modern missiles that have really, really high capabilities, and that makes it a really potent system. The problem is, the drawback here is that there just aren't that many made. Um, Norway just hasn't made... Uh, you know, in a, there may be 30 of these things in existence to our knowledge. Uh, so there's just not a ton of them out there. Um, but every every bit helps. And uh, we're definitely happy to see NASAMs in Ukraine. Uh, to be fair, Axel apparently has been, uh, he mentioned NASAMs week two of the war. He said, it'd be nice to get some NASAMs. So uh, we're happy to see them for sure. Uh, Portland, did you have anything you wanted to add about NASAMs? Um. I mean, it depends on how much detail the the original questioner wants us to go into, but you covered the basics. Lisa, do you have any specific questions about NASAMs? No, that you explained it quite clearly. That was very good, and I'm very excited about that. Thank you so much for supposedly, your explanation. Yeah, I never found proof of this, but supposedly that is what the White House uses to like protect the airspace around the White House. Uh, I don't know if Portland or Axel can confirm or deny that, but uh, I was reading about NASAMs, and then someone said maybe the White House has them. I can talk about black pudding now. All right, go for it. So we got uh, all your spaces. Go ahead. So there was a strike on a, I guess, supposedly an ammunition uh, depot. Uh, somewhere in Ukraine, I think in the last day or so, there's some foot video footage of this, you know, circulating around now. And it resulted in a pretty large explosion. And there was some speculation maybe going around as to that there might, there may have also been, um, I don't know what, what that substance is called. It's associated with fertilizer, but it's pretty volatile. Um, Ammonia? Is, yeah, some some kind of a, a nitrate or something like that, that that's used for fertilizer, but they can also be really explosive. And I was just wondering if anybody knew that if, if there was any confirmation that, I mean, it it almost seemed as though, and I, I don't want to, you know, get too far out on hearsay, but it almost seemed as though maybe these weapons were being stored kind of in conjunction with this this plant that had this highly volatile significant amounts of this highly volatile substance. And I'm just wondering what the strategic advantage of doing that might be. I, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but uh, I mean, and again, sorry, could you DM me the video and I'll see what I can figure out for you. Okay. Yeah. I'll try to look it up here. Cool. Um, but the material you're thinking about is ammonium nitrate which is not actually particularly explosive until it is mixed with fuel oil, hence the term ANFO, ammonium nitrate fuel oil. Um, now, if you really want to get your big bang for your buck out of that stuff, what you're going to do is you're going to dope it with alumina, and that gives you alumina-boosted ammonium nitrate fuel oil. Um, but that actually has a pretty distinctive telltale um, when it goes up. Uh, so I should be able to tell you what's that all about 
pretty quickly. And in terms of, I guess, like the logic of where the Russians put their ammo depots, if that maybe, if I'm speaking to your kind of question a little bit, um, as far as we can tell, like they kind of follow a book. Like they're pretty, pretty predictable in terms of like the their book tells them, okay, you're in an area, you've got an area of operations, put an HQ here, put an ammo depot here, you know, uh, put your trenches this way. And so um, we've seen, at least according to, you know, Ukrainian sources, we've seen situations where, um, you know, one army will come in and they'll follow the book, they'll set up the HQ, they'll set up the ammunition depot. Uh, Ukraine will just blow it all up with artillery because they know where all this stuff is because they know they're going to follow the book. And then that army will retreat and then like a new army will come in and they'll follow the book and they'll set it all up the same way. And like, so, so uh, you know, I think part of it is just... Uh, uh, there's a certain level of uh, predictability in terms of like where they're going to set things up and, and, uh, and how they set it up. And I don't know, I think fa- factories uh, are probably a good, good place there. It's probably a place that there there's, you know, an, an easy setup. And as, as Portland said, it typically uh, it's not explosive inherently. And yeah, we've seen them set up supply depots in kind of crazy places before, like uh, Chernobyl and, and places like that. So I don't know. Just uh yeah, Russian supply depots, man, they put them they put them in weird places, but they typically big places. They they don't seem to have I I don't typically see like Russian supply caches of small amounts of stuff. It's always a a big big facility. Sorry, I've been rambling a bit, so I'll stop there. Thank. You. Okay, we'll go to Nina. Nina, go ahead. Mm, thank you, Joseph. And hi everybody. I was reading a interesting article on Helsinki Sanomat today that the uh, Russians have been uh uh like in Belarus, they have some uh, tra- trains where they put ammos, and uh, I will tell you how uh, how much they uh, have been loading there. Uh, about uh, twenty, uh, uh, how do you say train? Uh, when there is one piece of train. Uh, oh, like a train car. Yes, tra- twenty train cars uh, full of these ammo, and uh, it, the discussion is, is: is that a lot or not? And also that they say that uh, uh, the Ukrainian, uh, uh, not defense minister, but the next from the defense minister, Hanna Maliar, said uh, on Washington Post that uh, the Russia uh, Russia is uh, shooting towards Ukraine daily. Uh, over 60,000 uh, ammunitions uh, and uh, Ukraine just a tenth of this and as a comparison uh, in the uh, war between Soviet Union and Finland 41-44 uh, the uh, day uh, thir- 3rd of 7th 1944 was the most that they that the Finnish uh, uh, like uh, uh, they shot against the uh, Soviet 12,000 uh, times, and uh, in Soviet it w- was 28th of 6th, 1944, when the Red Army uh, were shooting uh, towards Finland 14,000. So 60,000 sounds like a lot, and I'm just uh, uh, I'm asking uh, how how do you think that uh, Russia can keep up uh, with shooting 60,000 times with this uh, uh, 60,000 times 
towards yeah okay Nina. so it's a it's a big question i'll do my best to answer so um it's definitely you're right the scale is absolutely huge uh, as you said uh compared to world war ii it's it's uh it, it, you know quite quite large uh on, on par with or even uh, a, bit, a bit more in addition to that you know artillery uh, increased in power a lot it's it's basically the artillery systems we're looking at were kind of perfected in the 60s. There's been some changes, but, you know, arguably that these are systems that were, you know, created in the 60s. Uh, and uh, the explosive power uh, compared to World War II is a, a quite a bit higher. So there, it's a, even more destructive in terms of per shell. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, we now have drone technology, right? And drones really revolutionized uh, the accuracy of even unguided artillery shells. You now have the ability to correct fire uh, uh, from a very uh, high vantage point and be able to see exactly, okay, I need to adjust five meters this way, right? So the accuracy and the deadliness of artillery have increased uh, immensely. As far as like, when is Russia going to run out of artillery shells? It's a big question. Even our artillery experts don't really seem to know how many artillery shells Russia has, but I'll give you just like a, a kind of an idea of the Soviet Union, right? Like they were, they the Soviet Union sincerely believed that at some point there would be a war where they had to take over the entire world and spread communism to the world. And this was their military doctrine to use this artillery. So the, the plan was that they needed a lot of it and they made a lot of it uh, to the point where they drained an entire lake in Central Asia. They like destroyed the entire ecology of uh, Central Asia to, to a certain degree. Uh, to grow cotton because cotton is part of uh, uh, artillery propellant, right? So um, they made a lot of this stuff. Um, I think that they probably don't have like as much as I'm, you know, it's not unlimited. Um, I don't want to like make it sound like it's unlimited, but there is an awful lot. And so in terms of failure points, we're probably in, they're probably not going to run out of shells so much as they're going to run out of arms that can like load and unload the shells or maybe trains that can move the shells or depots that can hold the shells. That being said, the other kind of missing variable in this equation is how many of these shells are being blown up when these depots blow up, right? Is it, you know, millions of shells? Is it thousands of shells? Um, And uh, we don't know the answer to that, but if if it is millions and uh, millions of shells, then I mean maybe they they will run out if they have to replace all of them. They just keep getting blown up. But um, yeah, it's a it's a big question. We're not entirely sure. I think probably they're probably not going to run out of shells. It's probably better to think of this in terms of time, right? Where bu- Ukraine is buying time, and um, those sh- those shells were available to Russia to use now, right? Like they need those shells it's not enough to just have the shells. You have to have those shells on the front line, ready to go, ready to be used uh, uh, in your artillery. So now they have to start over. They have to take them from where whatever storage is available and bring them to the front line again and risk them being blown up again. So, so that slows them down considerably. It costs them more labor to do that. It costs them more time. It costs them train capacity. It costs them all those things. So, you know, it's not to say that it doesn't help to, to blow these depots up, but uh, I don't know if they'll run out, but it's it buys Ukraine time and time buys Ukraine, um, you know, opportunities on the battlefield. We'll put it that way. Um, Axel, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, whenever they run out for and whenever they scale down the frequency with which they are um, shelling 
uh, the Ukrainian side, the Ukrainians can actually engage in active combat. That's the key aspect. And whenever the, uh, they have to move the artillery because a change in their supply routes, and whenever they, whenever they move uh, supplies around, we can see them, therefore we can take them out. Right, the combination of you know the intelligence and knowing where all this stuff is and the ability to destroy it all with strategic weaponry is uh, really significant. Uh, Portland, did you want to add anything to this? Um, yeah, um, the Russians shoot a lot of artillery, but it doesn't necessarily all um, do anything useful except move mud around. Um, the rounds that the Ukrainians are shooting back are for the most part much more accurate and they are shooting against targets that have been much more effectively cross-fixed and localized. So, um, you know, 10 to 1 is still a bit, you know, I, I would like to see that number improve. But I don't think that Ukraine needs to even approach parity. Um, I think if that number was, say, three to one, I would suggest that the Russians would find themselves uh, very much on the back foot. Thank you, Portland. Uh, Nina, uh, did that answer your question? Do you have any follow-up? Go ahead. Yes, thank you. It did, uh, and... Made me just uh, make a conclusion in my head that uh, Ukraine has the quality of the fighting and and uh, Russia has the quantity, but uh, I think quality is usually more valuable. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think you know Operator Skarsky was uh, he stopped by uh, the other day and Axel and I were talking to him and uh, one thing he said to Axel I think is really important to keep in mind and Axel said it was a good point which is that the Russians still use um, area fire right in other words they say they they tell their artillery shoot this grid square right like sh just blow up this entire grid square uh, on this map right whereas the Ukrainians have target fire right they say blow up this gun blow up this specific target this ammo depot this thing right so it's a difference in philosophy in terms of like how you're using the assets you have and you know logistics is no small thing it's it's no small effort to have to to haul a, a ton of sh to haul 60,000 shells a day to a front line to use them and to expose all that stuff to fire to expose the trucks to fire uh, from your enemy to expose the artillery pieces to enemy fire to expose the crews to enemy fire and all the shells um so yeah it's uh, uh typically you know you want high quality equipment because it lowers uh the footprint of all that and uh increases your your capability uh you know on the battlefield but uh, i'm sure uh portland uh, could talk about that with more experience than me and uh, axel as well uh, thank ahead, you James. can i just uh, add that uh, uh I dropped down, so I didn't. I, I lost, missed some sentences there between, and you started to talk about something about the intelligence. And uh, uh, can we say that uh, the Ukrainians have more accurate uh, intelligence uh, than the, than Rush, Russia has? Can we say so? I don't know. In terms of military intelligence, I think so. Uh, you know, 
it's it is we we can't deny that you know Russia has had intelligence uh, operations going on in Ukraine for a long time. They have a lot of influence and soft power that uh, Ukraine is uh, doing their best as a country to kind of uh, uh, mitigate during during the war and the invasion. Uh, but uh, in terms of like military intelligence, in terms of knowing where um, equipment is moving, in terms of knowing where generals are hanging out, in terms of just knowing, for example, where cell phones are active and things like that, um, you know, countries like the U.S. can help Ukraine a lot. And Ukraine has really exceeded our expectations in terms of their ability to use the intelligence they have uh, and specifically the military intelligence to uh, their advantage. So, yeah, we have absolutely every confidence that they're going to use uh, their intelligence, especially in occupied territory. OK, so um, yeah, that's Nina. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure we can hear you. Go ahead, Nina. I think we lost you, Nina. Maybe you can uh, cycle down and back up. I'm not I'm not great at doing that stuff. So uh, hopefully hopefully you can hear me and do it. Uh, so until then, we'll go to Dr. Dom. We'll pick that up with Nina maybe hopefully in a second. Dr. Dom, go ahead. Hey, uh, guys. I want to ask, are uh, Russians also using shoot-and-scoot tactics, or are they just sticking around in the area and bombarding it to hell and then just seeing if anything responds? So are the Russians using shoot-and-scoot tactics? I think they are, uh, but not as much as the Ukrainians are, um, because Russians typically have to use big formations of artillery, right? Um Ukraine has, not all, right, Ukraine is still using some Soviet-era artillery, but in terms of, like, NATO artillery, it's all pretty accurate, and uh, they're using dispersed fire, so, like, they're, they've got one gun over here and one gun over there and one gun over there, and so that makes it difficult to, to track counter-battery fire, right? Like, um, they don't know exactly where all, it's, it's hard to figure out where all the pieces are. Um, in terms of like footage of what we've seen of Russia, Russia relies a lot more on just um, collecting. And, and I'll put it this way: NATO artillery is very accurate, right? So you know, if you put one or one to three artillery pieces on a target, you're going to take it out, right? Um, Russian artillery, they need a lot more of it to achieve the same goal, right? It's not as accurate um, for a lot of different reasons. Probably the main reason is because um, actually, like measuring out, like it's 1.5 thousand grain pellets of, of propellant, right, um, that need to go into this artillery shell to make it exactly shoot where you want it to go. And, uh, you know, Western countries have gotten really good at that, that type of uh, very, um, you know, detailed level of industrial uh, production, whereas uh, the Russian model is a little bit more like, eh, just make sure there's enough grains in there, and then, you know, 10 shells will, will do the job, right? That's kind of more the Russian attitude. I'm oversimplifying it a bit. The point is, Russia needs to mass more guns on the same point to achieve the same result as Ukraine. And as a result, they have to have more guns kind of massed together, and it makes it a lot more difficult for them to organize quick shoot and scoot. Um, that said, I mean, you have you kind of have to shoot and scoot, especially now that we're seeing um, real counterbattery capability on behalf of the Ukrainian military, like Caesars and Panzer Howitzers that have real range and reach that can um, pretty quickly and devastatingly hit uh, Russian artillery. So when Russia enjoys an artillery advantage, um, they they, they kind of mass their stuff. They're they're very confident. They're not really shooting and scooting. But um, now that they're encountering more dangerous systems, specifically the Caesar and Panzer Howitzer, I would say um, they're they're having to adopt those tactics a little more. 
But uh, Axel, maybe uh, you can speak to this a little better than me. Uh, go ahead, Axel. I think Axel's good. Portland, uh, I know you're not. Sorry, I'm just feeding guy. my boy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay, no worry, Axel. Uh, Portland, uh, I know you're not an artillery guy, but if you had anything you wanted to add here, uh, feel free. If not, uh, you can just say no. Oh, uh, I was just going to ask you to pull Nina back up because she's still trying to ask a question. Yeah, absolutely. So we got Nina back. Uh, Nina, you can finish your point. Go ahead, Nina. I think, I think we lost Nina. I'm sad. Uh, Dr. Dom, did you want to finish up? Go ahead. Yeah, but this thing about the grains and uh, the artillery shells makes sense. Anybody who shoots Russian ammunition knows that from batch to batch, you get different types of accuracies, not only depending on uh, whatever the amount of propellant that's in uh, the actual casing, but also how the casing is made and all these other things. So this doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hopefully you can come on when CJ's on. Uh, CJ's really good. He's an actual battery commander uh, in the U.S. military, and uh, he has a lot of great artillery advice. So most of what I'm saying is just uh, stealing stuff I've heard. Yeah, thanks for your question. Uh, we appreciate yeah, it. I was around in the beginning days of this space. Uh, oh, okay. I had a, <laughs> I had a personal tragedy, so now I'm back. I, by the way, I'm Dr. Dom, I'm very, glad, I'm very glad that you're back. I hope you're well. Uh, I'm good. Other things have not been so, but I will try to be around more often. Much, much appreciated. And uh, Kitos or Jinkui Bazo. <laughs> Best problemo. Thank you very much, Dr. Dom. So we'll go to, uh, uh, I don't think we've got Nina back yet. If we get Nina, we'll, we'll uh, go to her, but uh, we'll go to uh, Lisa. Go ahead, Lisa. I think that all, I don't know who did all you was before me. Okay, sure. Uh, 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 all your uh, space. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just curious if uh, Portland, I, I think the DM went through about the supposedly Russian ammo depot that got hit, but it had a what looked like kind of a non-typical explosion, explosion compared to some of the other footage of other depots that have been hit. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on maybe what, what you might think of was was going on there. So that was a very, very big bang, but it wasn't an ANFO bang. Um Ampho, um kind of goes up. Um, uh, the thing is, is that um, the thing that determines the difference between. Uh, sorry, everyone. I'm uh, I'm about to go to sleep, and I think you can tell. So I apologize. Um, no Portland. You, you've been very yeah. helpful tonight, and it's been, I know it's been a big night. It's been a lot of booms. Uh, so, yeah, we appreciate yeah. all your expertise. And, uh, yeah, if you, if you want to just call it a nightmare, go ahead. But uh, we'll let you finish I, your uh, point here. Go ahead. I'll, uh, I'll finish this one off, and then I'll, uh, I'll head to sleep. Um, a pretty good example of an ANFO explosion is um, that blast from Lebanon. Like the really famous one, huge, great big explosion that was about twelve hundred tons of ampho going up. Uh, it goes up with a with a really bright white flame um, because it's deflagrating, not detonating. And the difference between a deflagration and a detonation basically comes down to: does the flame front propagate through the material faster than the speed of sound in that material? And that really depends on the density of the material. So to make AMFO um, detonate properly, what you have to do is dissolve it in um, uh, high test peroxide, like 90, 90 plus percent hydrogen peroxide. 
and then precipitate um, the hydrogen peroxide out, and what you get left with is um, is is pretty dense packed anfo, which then has to be packed inside a metal tube to induce it to um, uh, to to detonate rather than deflagrate. So that was definitely a big bang. That looks like a lot of uh, uh, that looks like a lot of shells going up to me. That doesn't look like an ampho explosion. Hopefully, many more go up. But for now, Portland, we we bid you adieu. Thank you very much for uh, sharing your expertise with us. We always appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you all very much. I am going to bed. Good night. Sleep. Sleep well. See you on the flip side. Be on the flip side. So I'll just do some uh, quick housekeeping here, guys. Uh, first off, if you guys can uh, retweet the space and like all the retweets, it helps us spread the word about the Walter Report. We want to get the word out to as many people as possible. Uh, Walter Report's brought to you by Maria Aid. People like Portland who have a lot of military experience and just know a lot about radar uh, for, for reasons uh, and know a lot about satellite analysis and things, uh, satellite imagery analysis, I should say. Uh, they provide their expertise to the Walter Report for free, and uh, we provide you guys 24-hour commercial-free uh, news coverage and analysis of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, different uh, systems and equipment and uh, you know politics and uh, economics involved. And uh, we provide all that expertise for free. All we ask is that you uh, send uh, any money that you want to support us with uh, to Maria Aid. Maria Aid's a charity that uh, has 100% of your donation go uh, toward helping Ukrainian soldiers and civilians. Right now, uh, we are raising money for tourniquets, uh, 1,000 tourniquets. We're very close to achieving our goal. So we'd really appreciate it if you guys could kick in for some tourniquets. Uh, Portland himself was a combat medic. He'll tell you uh, more than anyone else. Uh, We don't want to go into a situation where a combat medic uh, reaches for a tourniquet and it's not there, right? So... uh, that's our goal right now is to achieve 1,000 tourniquets and anything you guys can do to help us out uh, would be much appreciated. Uh, lastly, uh, if you guys have a question for the panel, sadly Portland can't answer any more questions about missiles or radar or blowing up bridges, but uh, if you have any questions or news about uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you want to come up and uh, share it with us, uh, just pop up here and uh, raise your hand and uh, we'll get to your question. Uh, so thank you very much and uh, we'll go to Lisa now. Lisa, go ahead. Okay. As uh, far as raising for the tourniquets, should we put like a footnote in there for tourniquets? Um, I'm pledging monthly. Uh, I was having a little bit of trouble with my PayPal account. Um, I understand, Lisa, just right now, um, that's like what all the donations uh, to Marie Aid are going to. So you don't have to put any kind of special note, but, uh, you know, we we appreciate you... uh, contributing monthly and uh you know just do what you can uh but uh yeah as of right now you know we're doing our best to raise for the tourniquets so i just want to make people aware uh we're pretty close to our goal so you know hopefully we'll achieve it pretty soon but uh yeah we uh if you want to kick in you can if uh you just contribute monthly that's we we appreciate that as well Uh, sorry go ahead i have another question i'm in and out of here i may look like i'm here but I'm taking care of my mother who is terminal, so sometimes I have to run off. But uh, today, July 3rd here, is her 90th birthday. Um, She didn't think that she would make it this far, 
but she has such will and determination that I believe if she was in Ukraine, she would be fighting. <laughs> but um, anyways, I wanted to ask about, the is it the Kerch Bridge where they put all the smoke coverage? Is that what it's, how it's pronounced? I'm not sure what you mean by smoke coverage, but yeah, the Kerch Bridge is the bridge that goes between Crimea and Russia, mainland well, they, Russia. They had these trucks that were producing smoke kind of like as a cover. Um, has anyone figured out what they were up to? The I, Russians? I'm yes. personally not familiar with uh, It was with, a test uh, we discussed oh, a few days ago on, uh, when they did It's a smoke chaff. It, yeah, it was a test, test accident? Was yeah, it wasn't large enough to do anything, yeah. It was to block out the bridge, but it was so small that it had to have been a test. It wasn't by full scale by any chance. Oh, okay. Thank you, Axel. And and uh, what is it? Liber... I don't get all these things. Liber... Liber awoke? <laughs> I appreciate Dr. your... Dom, uh, oh, okay, doctor. But, uh, I I appreciate your, your answers, and I appreciate, you know, that you guys... All you guys take the time to um, answer our questions. Thank you very much, Lisa. And uh, just for my own uh, curiosity, so, I mean, it does seem to me like if they're doing exercises to, to try to chaff, chaff is uh, like, uh, for audience, it's like a way to try to block, like, guidance systems, missile or something, I assume. So it would indicate they're, like, worried about an attack on the bridge, right? Or, or wrong, Axel? Yeah, they did or the test. Dom, Sorry, you want to... I'm just cleaning the pool here. Um, the they did the test right away when uh, they had heard or read the transcript of uh, high mass with ammunition rather than high mass with M31. Right. So I think that's maybe uh, like one one thing we might be able to take away from that that little test is that Russia might be a little little concerned about their bridge. Uh, so we'll go to uh, All Your Space next. Uh, go ahead, All Your Space. Yeah, I, I saw the video that I think that she's, uh, in reference to her question, which was uh, the perspective of somebody, uh, probably a, a Russian uh, um, driver, and it, it looked like their smoke test resulted in a, at least one vehicle collision on the bridge. So um, I don't know what the, I, I I understand why Russia might want to try to practice that, but if there's if these type of munitions that may be used to target that bridge are using like GPS guidance, I'm not really sure like what <laughs> that the that the smoke or the chaff would really be all that effective. Maybe it would. I I don't know. Uh, but I had a question about uh, the situation well, that I've seen mentioned quick, here. Can, can we just pause there, like? I, I too, uh, have that question. Axel, we're dumb. Like, can you block a bridge with chaff? Like, could, would that work? Would it fool a, a, a missile from hitting the bridge? Mate, I'm standing in the slush of the empty pool, so I'm, I, I need a few minutes. Okay, okay. Sorry, sorry, Axel. Okay, maybe maybe he can come back and answer that in a little bit. Uh, okay, we'll leave Axel alone for now. Sorry, all your space. Uh, go to your question, your actual question. Uh, sorry, sorry I interrupted you before. Go ahead. Uh, okay, so let's see here. Uh, there's a, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Newscom World. I'm, I'm not familiar with them. So, uh, but it says here that Russia accused China of spying and illegally copying, copying Russian military hardware and weapons. 
Uh, I don't know that that is probably necessarily anything new. I would imagine this has probably happened in the past, but and I, I don't know if that really speaks to the kind of um, I don't know military partnership that that they may or may not have. Um, it, it seems like that's not really something that probably happens a lot with with say the NATO. Um, I, I was just wondering if anybody could uh, like speak to what that is or if uh, if I could should I throw it in the nest to give better context on what I'm referring to uh, so I think no um, but yeah I'll try to I'll try to feel it as best I can I'm not certainly not an expert in this but I do remember Jing kind of came up and explained this once and his basic explanation was like Russian military technology you know we, we knock it right but it is by by global standards, you know, or we I should say by non-Western standards, pretty good, like um, at least uh, specifically by Chinese standards. Um, so particularly when it comes to something like an aircraft engine, uh, Russia has a technological advantage over China. China can't really quite replicate uh, Russia's uh, capabilities there. Um, so in terms of like, there's not a lot China can do to like really help Russia in that regard. Um, and I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's probably true that like Russia is or sorry, China is stealing uh, military technology from Russia as far as like, will it um, like hurt their relations? Um, I mean, I, I don't think so. I think uh, their relationship is going to be defined by like other factors uh, going forward. But uh, yeah, that's just my my hot take. I wish uh you know, it feels like you asked your question to Axel and you got his intern. So that's that's the best I can do for you. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Hope, hopefully that answers your question. Do you have any follow up? Go ahead. Um, no, I mean, I guess it's I mean, I, being that it's China that's that's doing this, I guess it's not really surprising. Um, I mean, I guess they're kind of known for, for doing that kind of stuff. Uh, but it just it's because the because of their relationship, especially as of late, it does just seem kind of. I don't know, slightly amusing, I guess, uh, that, that that would uh, be be an issue, I, I suppose. Anyway, maybe not surprising, but still kind of amusing. Yeah, you know, Jing's usually, like, listening at this hour, but I think, you know, it's Saturday night, he's probably out partying. He's probably probably, probably kind of a partier. Uh, but uh, we got Dr. Dom, go ahead. Uh, there's no word on what they stole, I, I expect. All your space, is there any word on uh, what, what they what they stole i will i will open the article i will i'll click on the link to the article uh wish me luck <laughs> and i'll see if see if i can find out any more details because if it's electronic warfare okay, stuff yeah, then yeah russia would definitely have an advantage there and the chinese would definitely want to steal that stuff but yeah engines something else i don't know anything about that so, so Axel sent me some messages I'll share with you guys. He sent me pictures of a pool he's cleaning out. Uh, it's like a, a steel grotto, or sorry, not a steel, a stone grotto. And then he said, the chaff is not effective. You heard it here first, folks. The chaff is not effective. And he said, I need eight minutes. So we're going to give Axel eight minutes. Uh, the, the, he, he does not rate the, the, the chaff exercise on the bridge. Uh, he could still find the bridge. Uh, after the chat so uh there you go guys uh so yeah if anyone has any questions uh we'll get axel back here in, in a little bit but uh until then if you guys have any questions or uh news stories uh that you heard recently about uh, the russian invasion of ukraine you guys want to come up or if you have any just general thoughts or comments about the russian invasion of ukraine come up raise your hand uh i'll be happy to uh field your question or comment 
Uh, go ahead and all your space. Okay, so I read a little bit into this article here, and I can't really have this open. I think I think my mic will still work, so I'm going to try to just read this briefly, uh, some of the details as to what this tweet was about with the Chinese spying and Russian military stuff. All right, go ahead. Good. Uh, Russia has accused... Russia has accused China of spying and illegally copying Russian military hardware and weapons. I'm uh, so, sorry. Somebody Ollie, have a hot mic. Yeah, yeah, you got a Ollie, if you could uh, mute your mic for now and just uh, raise your hand, and uh, we'll get to you next, okay? Thank you. Uh, all your space, go ahead. Russia has accused China of spying and illegally copying Russian military hardware and weapons. This is not the first time, however. Russia is silent on the issue. Recently, Russian authorities have found... Valery Mitko, president of its St. Petersburg Arctic Social Sciences Academy, guilty of handing over classified documents to the Chinese intelligence. An investigation in the matter further revealed that Mitko handed over classified data during his visit to China. After his return to Russia, a search took place in his apartment. He was charged with high treason, uh, stated his lawyer, Ivan Pavlov. Uh, Mitko passed the information on to China to China on Russia's, Russia's research on hydroacoustics and submarine detection strategies. He has now been put under house arrest at his apartment by the St. Petersburg court. Um, so I guess those are the specifics, supposedly. I, I have no idea to the validity of, of any of this. So take it with yeah, the so, green. So the one thing I will say about that is that Taiwan has like very good submarines. They have one of the best uh, submarine fleets in the world most modern and so uh, it would make sense that china's all about trying to get information how to detect and neutralize uh submarines so, sounds about right uh let's go to ollie ollie go ahead yeah um good morning i'm actually from ghana and i've been listening to this space for quite a very very long time i actually got the news um russia invaded ukraine from Water and a group of OSINT guys, open source guys. And I used to follow this group of um, Azov guys on Instagram for about a year now because I've been researching about them. I'm a history major and I recently realized that one of them on my Instagram has been released and he, he came back with a lost, like an amputated leg. And I think you guys should listen to his story i don't know how water can get to him i think it would be amazing if he could come on the space and share his story it's going to be really really amazing yeah absolutely and uh i do know that uh this weekend we're trying to have a family that uh, came from Kherson uh, come and share their story with us so uh yeah if we could get a, an azov fighter uh, who managed to uh come back from the prisoner exchange we would be absolutely thrilled and uh yeah for for sure but uh, thank you very much, Ali, for uh, sharing that with us. And uh, yeah, I had a good friend from uh, Ghana in, in college, so appreciate mm-hmm. uh, you, you uh, coming up and talking. Uh, do you have anything else uh, you want to say? Any follow-up? Go ahead. Yes. You know, I also have this issue of having Africans supporting Russians. And, you know, I want you guys to, you know, just ignore them. They, they feel like Russians are their friends because maybe Russians supported Africans and fighting for our freedom from colonialists. But I really think what Russians are doing right now is really, really not good. And, you know, this issue of Africans supporting Russians really hurts me 
And I don't know what you guys think about that.